Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. My guest today is Langston Emerson, a partner with the Cypress Group who works closely with ACG on public policy and advocacy initiatives. He joins me today to talk about the legislative issues that stand to impact middle market businesses and ACG members, and to give a preview of the upcoming midterm elections, including what's at stake if Democrats gain control of the House of Representatives and key races to watch. Langston, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. So to start, what are some of the legislative provisions that ACG is watching that stand to impact middle market businesses and investors? From ACG's perspective, there aren't, um, at this point, any high uh, burning legislative initiatives that uh, ACG has been focusing on or is focusing on for the benefit of its membership. There, um, meaning that there's no real legislative uh, proposal or bill that would have a direct impact on ACG members. And with that said, uh, there's a core focus from ACG's public policy and government affairs team on uh, educating and positioning itself on Capitol Hill as the leader and the resource for the middle market industry. But outside of the direct impact legislative uh, proposals, there are generally a few uh, proposals or bills that are being considered in Congress that may have may be of interest and uh, or have an indirect impact on the middle market businesses and investors. Uh, you know, one of those that I just mentioned from a very high level is what is called the Jobs Act 3.0. Um, they've had a 1.0 version uh, prior to and 2.0, and now this is the, the third version of the, the Jobs Act bill, which is originated in the House Financial Services Committee under Chairman Jeff Hensling. Uh, it had a bipartisan vote with the Democrats, including ranking member Maxine Waters. And in the effort of this whole entire package, which included several bills, was to um, grow capital formation um, to to include several bills that would help increase capital access to businesses. So that that bill passed the House and uh, in earlier this year, in mid-July, and there are opportunities for it to move forward. So right now, it's a slow, slump chance that it may pass the Senate as well as uh, reach the president's desk before the end of the year. But there, there have been um, discussions around different ways to make that happen. And, and so while it's a slimmer chance, there is opportunity for it to happen. Hmm. Um, there is another opportunity for the, the Jobs 3.0 bill to, to have certain provisions pulled out um, of that particular package and put into a must-pass legislative vehicle this year. For instance, the appropriations and funding mechanism bill that needs to happen this year, um, they're looking at opportunities to include these bills into that type of a, a bill that is a must-pass for this year. So if they could pull from the Jobs 3.0 bill several bipartisan, non-controversial bills that would help the capital formation and capital access and uh, and not have any real issues with them in the House and Senate, then there are opportunities, potentially opportunities, to attach those bills to a must-pass bill and have it put to the president's desk later on this year. Hmm. Um, I think outside of the banking bill, there is um, the tax 2.0 version uh, 
tax 1.0 being the bill that passed the major overhaul of the tax law last year. That bill was put forward earlier this month uh, by the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. And the bill it was released earlier this month and is being marked up uh, and released three bills, essentially three separate bills as part of a, the, the total bill tax 2.0 package. And Essentially, it, it, while it's, it, it's very important and it does lay the groundwork for further activity amongst the tax writing committees, whether it's the House or the Senate, it, it, it's a messaging piece um, going into elections as opposed to something that will likely get done this year. Hmm. Um, so there, there, the bill includes three areas. The one is proposal that uh, permanently extends the individual and small business pass-through provisions and the, the first tax bill. Um, they weren't permanent or made permanent prior to in the original tax bill. So this bill would make a lot of those provisions um, that apply to individuals and small businesses permanent. It would also promote family savings through universal savings accounts and expanded 529 education accounts and incentivize entrepreneurs by allowing new businesses to write off more of their initial startup costs. Hmm. Um, There's also uh, a portion of the bill that focuses on retirement savings, um, a, a, a bill that's called the Retirement Enhancement and Savings Act, otherwise known as RESA, and includes references to proposals to allow small businesses to join together to create 401k plans um, more affordably and simplifying the rules for them to do that. And, and then there's a, a, the third aspect of it that would, it would take the individual tax cuts and make them permanent, as I mentioned earlier, um, it, it goes beyond just the pass-through provisions, but again, when we look at making these individual tax cuts and, and for small businesses and individuals permanent, it, it's more of a messaging, messaging piece, as I said earlier. Um, the likelihood of it passing the House is pretty high, but the likelihood of it passing the Senate and clearing the 60-vote filibuster threshold is very unlikely, given that there will likely be Democratic opposition. Um, so that's where the tax bill is. There's also likely to be some technical corrections bill to the original tax bill that passed last year. Um, and, and again, that's very technical dealing with issues that are much smaller and less content or policy based issues, but pretty much uh, it, it's going through the bill, making certain that if there were any mistakes made or things that um, weren't clear or things that needed to be made clearer, uh, that they could do it within the technical corrections bill. And another topic that ACG's policy team has been writing a lot about on on middlemarketgrowth.org is the National Labor Relations Board and its joint employer standard, which has a lot of implications for middle market businesses within ACG's membership. Um, You know, is there there any pending legislative activity around that standard? There is, and uh, not just on the legislative front, but also on the regulatory side as well. So um, in November of 2017, the House of Representatives approved a bipartisan bill um, called the Save the Local Businesses Act, and it would provide clarity on the joint employment standard in a manner that would, would be beneficial to ACG and its members. And there was an industry push um, with ACG and others to push for Senate Republicans to attach this particular bill to language, um, this particular bill to a must-pass bill, as I mentioned earlier, some of those must-pass bills that have to happen this year whether it's an appropriations bill or funding bill for the government funding bill, to, to see if there's a way to uh, attach it so it would be passed this year. Um, that is still in discussions now and whether this bill is able to be attached to a, 
a must-pass bill is still fairly up in the air at this point. But in addition to that, I think that one thing that's uh, pretty exciting for this in this particular issue is what's happening on the agency or regulatory side. With the NLRB rulemaking, um, in, in June, the NLRB chair, John Ring, responded to a letter from a group of Senate Democrats saying that the NLRB would issue a notice of the proposed rulemaking on the joint employer issue as soon as possible. There was an update that the NLRB just released this particular uh, proposed rulemaking on the joint employment standard. So it's now out. While the legislative front is still moving forward, um, not definite, but moving forward, definitely seeing some real movement on the, the agency side. So I think there's uh, two fronts in which this is moving, and hopefully there's a result that's beneficial to ACG. But as of now, things seem to be moving uh, much faster, at least on the agency side, uh, than on the legislative side, but in a positive way, I think, overall. Mm. And we should say, too, that that standard, um, you know, governs when one company can be liable for another company's employees with implications for franchises and a, a wide range of businesses. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, can you talk a little bit about the data security bill? There is an effort and an ongoing effort to address data collection and data security issues. Because of the data breaches that have occurred over the past few years, um, it's, it's a reoccurring situation that Congress has attempted to tackle. The issue itself of data security reaches multiple committees in, in Congress as opposed to just one committee. So it makes it very difficult for a bill that has multiple jurisdictions to get done. Uh, there are a lot of cooks in the kitchen, if you will, and it makes it difficult for the Congress to move quickly and to act. So considering that, there was with this particular issue, data security, it's multiple jurisdiction with, when you look at financial institutions, falls within financial services committee, but also, if there's a, a huge component that falls within Energy and Commerce Committee. And there's been a lot of efforts in the past to do a, a joint bill that's kind of hasn't had as much success as most would have anticipated. So there was an initial, uh, there was a bill introduced more recently by the subcommittee chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, Chairman Luke DeMeyer, who introduced a financial services specific bill on data security. Hmm. And so the bill is a, it's a modification, if you will, of a wider-ranging discussion draft that Luke DeMeyer, Chairman Luke DeMeyer, released earlier in the year with his subcommittee ranking member, Democratic member, Carolyn Maloney, and it, it narrowed to cover only financial institutions and insurance companies. So the bill would codify existing guidance from federal regulators and preempt state requirements, which, from our understanding, is pretty helpful for the financial institutions that would be covered, given that they would not have to deal with the state-to-state disclosure requirements, and and this particular bill may, if if it all becomes law, be able to preempt and put together or put forward a one particular standard for collection and disclosure that would work for uh, these financial institutions. Although the bill has been narrowed, as I mentioned earlier, it was purposeful to avoid the necessity to go through the House Committee on energy and commerce. Um, so that that's helpful, but at the same time, I think it poses some challenges for its passage later this year. Um, and, and that's why, while it may pass the House Financial Services Committee, the likelihood of it, it moving forward beyond the House is um, 
or even to the House floor for a full vote is it's pretty slim. It lays groundwork for some activity in the upcoming Congress, the new Congress, but uh, we're not certain as a, as a team affirmed that um, from our client's perspective that this would be something that would move forward this year. From what we understand, this particular bill would apply to independent advisors, uh, investment advisors, um, asset managers, and individuals that are supervised or regulated by the SEC as well. So it would apply, from our understanding, to individuals with or members within ATG. And on the nominations front, the Senate recently voted to confirm a new SEC commissioner. Can you talk a little bit about that nominee and, and what it means for the middle market? So, yes, Elon Roisman is was nominated and confirmed as the SEC Republican commissioner. So that that's a really, really good situation for the SEC and, I believe, as well for ACG as many of its members uh, are regulated and supervised and examined by the FEC. And for a very long time, as you may know, the FEC just wasn't operating at, with all the members or the commissioners um, on, on staff. So now that ELOT is being confirmed, there is much more opportunity for the FEC to move and get things done. ELOT has been a strong supporter of kind of a cost-benefit analysis, which is really beneficial, uh, in particular for the middle market industry, where he and, and others on the commission may feel this way as well, but it's, it's, it's helpful to know that when you look at the cost-benefit analysis from a very high-level perspective, it seems though it, it could focus on, you know, the differences between um, small and mid-sized firms and, and larger firms or or something of that sort. And mm-hmm. so when, you, when you're looking at regulatory guidance or regulations and, and not taking a, a broad stroke brush across a particular industry, but looking at the cost benefit analysis and looking at one segment of the economy or the, this particular industry versus another, it's a pretty interesting viewpoint and perspective to take at the SEC, and, and I'd be interested in seeing, I think we all would be interested in seeing how it plays out in real time, um, in real regulation and guidance, but it could be seen as something that could be beneficial to the, the, the middle market community and ACG in particular. Mm-hmm. And I want to switch gears a little bit and, and ask you about the upcoming midterm elections. In your opinion, how likely is it that control of the House will shift, and does that change the calculus for any of the middle market initiatives that we've discussed moving forward? Yeah, it's a good question, and I am always skeptical and uh, about definitive answers around you know the election outcomes. But I will say that we have a perspective that there's about a sixty percent chance uh, that the House will change power um, and, and flip, where the Democrats will take the majority and take over the power, and that's. That's up today. There's a there's pretty long time in Democratic or election season lies for, for before this election takes place, and I think a lot can happen. But that's where things are as as we see it right now. We we understand that you know pundits have much higher numbers and about the House flipping, some have much lower uh, or somewhat lower numbers. I, so we're at sixty percent is where we are now. Um, there, if if the Democrats win back the majority by a small margin there is a maybe five to ten seats net needed there is a likelihood that there could be a change in leadership and that means leader nancy pelosi 
and, and her team may be voted out. There is a potential for that. There is a potential that she can also remain and stay in as well as the, as the new Speaker of the House, if the House changes. There is a lot of discussion and a lot of strategy happening at this point. It's, it won't be an easy win for anyone running against Nancy Pelosi and, and whether Nancy Pelosi wants to continue on. I mean, she's made given no, given no insight as to whether she wants to leave or, or step down if the House wins. From all we've heard, she wants to stay on. So I think it will be a challenging race. I know that a lot of candidates that are running across the country in Democratic for, for Democratic seats, um, some of them have mentioned that they would not vote for Nancy Pelosi for Speaker. That matters, um, you know. So there is an opportunity that she she could be beaten. Hmm. I think it's up in the air. I, I'll say all that to say that if the House flips, there is leadership change definitely in the Republican side because Paul Ryan is, is leaving. And so there will be a new head of the Republican group, uh, caucus. But in the Democrats, there is likely to be at least a real push for some change, whether it happens or not, is still in the air. What does that mean for the legislative agenda and items that ACG has, has focused on and is focusing on? If the House flips, there will definitely be uh, the 800-pound grill in the room. Is the, the Democrats will focus on Donald Trump and his, and, and his cabinet, and there will likely be a lot of committee chairs um, who will focus on oversight hearings, call administration officials in to testify, which would tie up a lot of the, the regulatory agenda that they may have and could cause an exodus or an, of Trump, skittish Trump appointees. It could also slow up the calendar, cause a lot of frustration amongst Republicans who, and some Democrats who may want to do bipartisan work and get jobs and get bills done um, because of this effort that that the House caucus has decided to, to take. That is a possibility, um, oversight hearings and, and, and calling administration officials to, hit, to the Hill. That can slow up and potentially damage bipartisan efforts early on in, in, in the new Congress. In the banking committees and tax writing committees or House financial services committees, if, if the House flips, then Maxine Waters, who is the ranking member, the highest ranking Democrat on the committee now, will be chairman of the committee and her focus has been squarely around the housing reform or GSC reform. Um, that's something that she wants to focus on and focus on affordable housing within that context as well. I think she also cares and has made it clear that she wants to focus on um, FinTech in particular consumer lending discrimination within the uh, new ways to obtain credit or not obtain credit. Hmm. So that's She's looking. Those are the two areas where she is really focused. Um, I think she will continue to focus on those issues if she does take over the House, and that will probably, if the House does flip, and that will take a lot of time and effort from her and her committee. Staff. Uh, on the tax front, if the House does flip, then you will have a new chairman and Richie Neal, who is currently the highest-ranking Democrat on the Ways and Means Committee. He has made it clear that if he became chairman, that one of the things that he would definitely focus on is uh, is retirement savings and legislation that could um, that would enhance the ability for individuals and make it easier for corporations to make to, to enhance savings um, retirement for for individuals and employees. 
And so this is something that he's always been focused on um, in his career in, in, in Congress, and particularly on the House Ways and Means Committee. And now that he has an opportunity to be chair, this will definitely be a focus of his, not the only focus, but it is definitely something he's made clear that it will be a primary focus, at least early on um, and throughout the um, tenure of his chairmanship. I think outside of that, uh, outside of the fiscal policy, I think there's, there's still things that have to be done regardless of whether the Democrats win the House or not. And, and, you know, if there are things that aren't passed before they go out for elections, then there will be, you know, bills that will continue to that will be passed and, and, and lame duck, as they call it, post-election. I don't sense that whether the House flips or not will have a substantial impact on the HCG membership. It will have a substantial impact on the committees of relevance and importance to ACG's membership as far as what they prioritize and what they work on. But again, the bills and things that issues that they're looking at focusing on, I don't think would have a direct impact on ACG members in a negative way, you know, at all. Um, but again, it's, it's, you have to wait and see details. But I think it's, again, another opportunity to touch and educate the new members of Congress and, and build and continue the existing relationships that ACG has. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the relationships that ACG has built with a number of lawmakers on both sides of the aisle that have been strong champions of, of middle market growth. Are any of their seats in contest and are there races that you're keeping a close eye on? ACG, over the time that it's developed its public policy and government affairs team, has has done a pretty good job of building out its relationships in Congress, House and Senate. And there are individual members, particularly some members who know and knew the middle market, knew private equity or before coming to Congress, who understand and understood the benefits um, and the importance of the middle market and access to private capital for that middle market, for those middle market businesses. There is a couple members, um, one member out of New Jersey, who's um, Congressman MacArthur, who is on the Financial Services Committee. He has a vulnerable seat, for instance. He's been, he's spoken to ACG on many occasions. He's been, um, he and his staff were really helpful and just supportive of the industry looking to be helpful in legislative items if there were any that ACC had um, and, and being the mouthpiece and the advocate on the financial services committee for them and beyond the committee, frankly. That's a, there's another member on the Democratic side, MacArthur's Republican, on the Democratic side, there's a Congresswoman Cinema, who is doesn't necessarily have a tight district race. Um, she has actually, she's leaving that seat to run for Senate. And so she is running for Arizona Senate race, and she is. It's a. It it it, it will be a tough race for her in Arizona. Um, this is something she hasn't done before, so this is the first time running for uh, U.S. Senate. Um, she could win, uh, but it will be tough. So that that is an individual that, again, you know, she has been extremely involved in ACG and, and supportive of ACG's efforts. ACG has created a, um, worked with members of Congress, created what is called the uh, Middle Market Caucus and a Congressional Caucus for the Middle Market. And they do a lot of um, events um, and, and, and speaking and, you know, engagements with members of Congress and staff to discuss issues that are 
important and prominent within the middle market community. And she uh, was she's the current chair of that caucus. It's definitely um, potentially losing a great advocate if, if, if she doesn't return to Congress. So uh, there are those type of members that ACG has built relationships with and, and continues to. But, you know, every cycle or so, things happen. And so it, it, to me and to ACG, and we know this, I know that there's an important leg of the advocacy stool that is really helpful within this particular discussion, the political action committee that ACG is building and continue to build. And that's why um, showing, being able to show support for the members of Congress who are supportive of your industry is really beneficial to them. And moving into an election where regardless of what happens in the House and Senate, there's going to be a significant number of new members of Congress. ACG and a host of other industries will be faced with the strong effort of getting to know these new members. And that means that they have to use in-office meetings and discussing with their members and ACG's members, discussing with members of Congress who they are and educating them on what they do. That's not just for the existing members, but you have a host of new members coming in that will be placed on committees of importance to ACG. ACG needs to be able to build those relationships. And it's always helpful and extremely beneficial to be able to use that other leg of the advocacy tool that is the political action committee, your PAC, to help build that relationship. The election, regardless of which way it goes, um, and whether ACG loses or you know, supporters or strong supporters of their mission and, and what they're pushed for in, in, in Washington, they're able to build more and they can continue to strengthen the strong the relationships that they have with members with members who haven't left Congress. And that could be done by the continual relationship building and education, um, in district visits, um, in state visits with the members of Congress and ACG's membership but also the political action committee. That's mm-hmm. going to be critical and important, and I'm really happy to see that ACG is in the process of growing that. Definitely. Yeah, this will be certainly an, an interesting election to watch. Um, so appreciate you coming on to, to walk us through it. And for listeners who are interested in learning more about ACG's policy and, and advocacy initiatives, um, we'll post information on the middlemarketgrowth.org website. So I think we'll leave it there. Langston, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in the iTunes store where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help listeners find out about us. After you've rated the podcast, head over to our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more stories about successful mid-sized companies and middle market M&A.